Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Thursday morning, the 6th of April. Good morning. With much debate and discussion from now till 11am, this is Michael Reed on LMFM. Long before Irish independence, James Connolly was the president of the Irish Neutrality League. In 1914, at the outbreak of the First World War, Connolly was prosecuted for holding a banner, We Serve Neither King Nor Kaiser But Ireland. So begins Ireland's long and cherished policy of being a neutral state. People today still respect the values of James Connolly, Constance Markovich, Sean Kelly and the founders of the Irish Neutrality League. But let's be honest, that was over a hundred years ago and we live in a very different world today. This week, the government has announced that a national consultative forum on Ireland's international security policy is to take place in June. It's going to examine issues like neutrality and defence. Let's speak to Minister of State, Neil Richmond, who's a Fine Gael TD, about this now. And a very good morning to you, Minister, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme today. Do you believe it's time to drop Ireland's policy of being neutral? Well, I think, Michael, first and foremost, we have to be honest about what that means. We're not politically neutral. We're members of the European Union. We've trade deals with over 100 countries, and we very care about the world, including the United States, whose president is going to visit us next week. But militarily, we are neutral, but I think we have to reflect uh, going forward that the world has changed and we are no longer an isolated nation and we have to consider things like cyber security, like relationships in the world. And the fact of the matter is that we have a war in our continent, the likes of which we haven't seen since the Second World War, and we're very limited in what support that we can give um, to Ukrainian people that are being decimated by Putin's brutal attacks. And I think the one key area of this consultative forum, Michael, that's going to be discussed is the so-called triple lock, whereby you can't deploy uh, more than four troops abroad without the permission of the Dáil and the government, which is perfectly acceptable, but also a UN security council. So effectively, we're giving China and Russia a veto over where we decide our troops are best placed to serve around the world. Right. Uh, So you want a referendum on the triple lock to begin with? Well, what we want to do is have the forum, have um, the four meetings in three different parts of the mm. country. Into oh, I know, but a lot of people already have uh, their own opinions on this. Uh, and I, I take it your opinion is in line with uh, the general opinion of Fine Gael, which is to drop the triple lock, which would require a referendum. 
Yeah, and that was a policy we passed at our, our election at Lone, and that's a very clear party policy. But what the government has said, the collective government, the three parties, is that we want a forum. And this is something that Micheál Martin has Taoiseach flagged a number of months ago, that we have this forum to talk about. A lot of people like to take, take neutrality as some binary issue, and people are understandably very emotionally attached to it. Um, and have very strong convictions either way, and I completely respect those. Mm. We need to have the informed discussion that isn't just a matter of, um, you know, sloganeering across the Dáil Chamber, but saying genuinely there's going to be a serious conversation at a European Union level in the next couple of years. It's already been started by Emmanuel Macron in France 18 months ago. What role could Ireland play in a closer security defence policy? Okay, forward? well, well, this, what role wouldn't we play? this goes back to 2009, doesn't it? Uh, when Irish people were promised by the government of the day that neutrality wasn't in question by signing up uh, to the Lisbon Treaty uh, and uh, that the triple lock would be in place, which meant uh, that there would be a UN Security Council resolution or a UN General Assembly resolution uh, that the Irish government would make a decision in deploying troops and that that would then have to be approved by the Dáil. Yeah, and Michael, that hasn't changed. Yes. Europe, Europe are going to have a discussion on social security. No, but the triple lock, the point I'm putting to you is that the triple lock was put in place to protect Ireland's neutrality so that people... Uh, would stop being uh, afraid that signing up to the Lisbon Treaty, one of the European Union treaties, would mean an end to neutrality. The triple lock was put in place for that purpose, and now Finnegale's position is well, is to drop to drop the triple lock. No, just to, to be quite clear, the main thing about the Lisbon Treaty was actually the defence opt-out that was inserted into the treaty by European Union partners to recognise Ireland's position. So that's not a parallel thing to the triple lock in terms of the actual legality support. Just to mention to you, Minister, just to mention to you, Minister, the line is breaking up somewhat, and we'll try to stay with you. I'm not sure if um, you're able to move uh, to a better area for reception, uh, but if that's possible, uh, it would be wonderful because uh, it's a, a very important conversation. I, I think you'll agree to so many people. Uh, the latest Irish Times poll on neutrality found that 67% of Irish people want Ireland to remain neutral. Yeah, and that is absolutely a finding, and I completely understand that. But we also have parallel opinion polls from Red Sea for European Movement, which show that 59% of Irish people want us to do more to cooperate more when it comes to security and defence. And this was highlighted, Michael, very clearly about 18 months ago when our HSE system was hacked by foreign agents. We do need to cooperate with our partners in the European Union to make sure that uh, our country is safe as possible. We talk about our... Um, Cybersecurity. We talk about the position of Ireland under siege. Well, why don't we talk about bullets and bombs? Well, that's the thing, Michael. 
defence and security has moved so much further in the modern world from bullets and bombs to hybrid warfare to cyber warfare. We've seen what's been going on in, in Central and Eastern Europe over the last five years. The most damage being done to the people of the Baltic states hasn't been done by Russian bombs, it's been done by Russian cyber attacks. We saw that the entire uh, IT system of the Estonian government was flattened for a whole week, a whole week where people couldn't get their social welfare payments, where people couldn't get their medical Mm. records. This is the modern security uh, era that we're in. We're not necessarily talking about sending soldiers off to some foreign land to fight a war. But it is the extension of that direction. If you uh, move in the direction of... Uh, uh, no longer being neutral, uh, well then uh, you're into the realm of overseas combat, uh, a European defence army. Well, we always have the opt-out. And as I said, that's enshrined in European law. We could never be compelled to join a common European defence or or the or the bogeyman of an EU army that is trotted out regularly when a referendum or a European election is being held, even though there's no plan to create a European army. But what it really does come down to, and what we want to achieve in this four, these four forum meetings, Michael, is to discuss the genuine modern challenges that is facing Ireland in terms of security, the opportunities that we have, the challenges we have, and the genuine feelings that experts want to bring to have an informed discussion that might, in due course, lead to a change policy. It mm. might not, Michael. But I think we but, have to be very clear when we say things like neutrality. Okay. We are militarily neutral, but we aren't politically neutral, and I think people need to be honest about that. Okay, well, uh, we're constitutionally prohibited from joining a, a European army uh, as things stand uh, under Article 42 of uh, the Constitution. Uh, if we were to have a referendum on neutrality, and that was... Uh, to be removed, we could be brought into a European army, uh, not by any decision made by Irish people, not by any decision made by an Irish government, but by a decision made by the European Council, could we not? No, that's completely false. And we have a very distinct opt-out uh, in European law as per the Lisbon Treaty in terms of the second reading. And Michael, I've been involved in, in European politics for over 20 years. Again, there is first and foremost no formalised desire to have a European army, but every EU member state, because Ireland isn't the only EU member state that is neutral, there's also uh, there's also Malta, there's also Austria mm. who has a much more sizable military um, arm than we do. Okay, but you if we... If, took if, the decision off their own volition. I, I'm sorry, Minister, Minister, I just have to um, check. I never uh, have confidence uh, about understanding the Constitution, but if we were to drop the triple lock and if we were to drop Article 29, Section 4 of the Constitution, would that not give the European Council the power uh, to bring Ireland into a, a common defence action. But Ireland has the option, as a sovereign EU member state, enshrined in EU law, to not accede to that because defence is an update. We can update of a European Council decision. You cannot be forced into anything because also when it comes to a decision like that, you have to have a, you have to have a unanimous decision of the European Council. So there's no legal basis where Ireland could be forced into that. Um, and I think it's not just Ireland. It's very important to remember that both, as I said, Austria and Malta are neutral, but also Sweden and Finland, up until a number of months ago, mm. uh, had the, the, the designed um, status that they were neutral to, but they themselves, by referendum, domestically, decided to drop their mm. policy neutrality. Finland joined NATO, obviously, in the last couple of days. Sweden has applied to. That's their right. That's their entire It was very foolish, though, wasn't it? But that's their... But was it not very foolish? for Finland to join NATO? Yeah. 
Well, if I had shared a border with Russia at the moment, I'd be fairly concerned about my security policy. They took the decision fairly drastically. I had the backing of all their main political parties, indeed all the political parties that backed it, actually saw their votes go mm. up in the Finnish general election. I wouldn't necessarily say NATO membership is foolish for the 31 member states. Well, if you go back, to the, the, if you go back to the bombs and the bullets, uh, it's the Americans, uh, the Germans and uh, the British who will probably decide uh, if Finnish boys are, are going to go out to war, will it not be? No, it's not, because NATO members have the option to... It's also, you're forgetting other very large powers like France and the fact that the mm. head of NATO is actually Norwegian. Um, they, it's a decision taken on a collective basis. We saw this before where not when, when there was a, a combined NATO uh, action um, that it was other... Not all member states have to play a part in it. That's their option. And again, I think this is really important. But they wouldn't... There'd be no question of it if they'd remained neutral, and that's the point. Yeah, but this is... But no, the point is, this is the choice of the Finnish people and the choice of Finnish politicians. It's not something that's being forced upon Finland by the EU or by NATO. Mm. And when we want to have these discussions, it's very important that no one's actually talking about NATO. No one's actually talking about the binary issue of neutrality. We want to genuinely break down very clear individual uh, challenges that are fa- facing the state that have changed drastically mm. over the last 12 months that have been brought up repeatedly in the Dáil and in the Shannon by people with very different opinions and who've called to have this discussion as Taoiseach Micheál Martin said quite clearly six months ago that we would have Who, who has called to have this discussion outside of Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil? Well, a number of independent TDs, but also you have from the, the different direction, people for profit put a private member's bill and wanted to have a referendum on neutrality, which mm. has actually made it even more restrictive, whereby at the moment we wouldn't be able to give anything to Ukrainian people, including non-legal mm. support, because that would be taking a side in a conflict. So, right? in essence, nobody outside of Fine Gael or Fianna Fáil has uh, called uh, for a discussion on dropping neutrality. And generally speaking, these no, things no, are dealt with, generally speaking, these no, things are dealt with through a citizens' assembly. Now we're going to have a lot of hawks talking down to us and telling us why we need to drop our neutrality. That's completely false, Michael, and you know it is, because ultimately um, a number of independent TDs and senators have called for us to relook at neutrality. Other dull deputies from before proper from Sinn Féin have asked us to do the other direction to strengthen neutrality. Yeah, the, we're having in this discussion, Michael... The independents would support government, wouldn't they? The, the likes of Carl Berry. Carl Berry did, but in the last vote, other independents didn't. So there's a split. Um, there's no uniform thing, and it's not that easy a subject just to throw people into categories and say it's demons against us. And again, nobody is going to talk down to anyone in these four. We're mm. going to have well, why doesn't it go to a Citizens' Assembly then? Well, it may go to a Citizens' Assembly in due course, but the decision taken, and the right decision, I feel, by the Tornishta, okay. is to have these consultative forums, as he committed to uh, for as he committed to in the Dáil previously, to have a real discussion, because we want to have a genuine informed debate about the mm. minutia. It's not just about the minor issue of neutrality. And then we have people saying it's all going to be hawks and we're going to bring in NATO discussions like that. That's not on the agenda. OK, let me ask you one other question, though, because... Let, let me ask you one other question, uh, because if you win this argument, and I think if you do win this argument, it'll be on the basis of uh, the bombs and the bullets, and you'll convince Irish people that Irish boys won't be sent to war. Uh, but if you win the argument uh, and people believe that that won't be the case, uh, well, where's the role as Irish as a peace broker? First, Michael, no one's talking about winning an argument. People are ha- talking about having a discussion forum to clearly identify and clarify 
what our policy is and what the options are moving forward and what people want to move in. When you talk about Ireland's role as a peace broker, Ireland has a really proud record as um, of sending peacekeeping forces to the United Nations. That shouldn't change. You know, we have an unbroken level of service over 60 years um, that the Irish Defence Forces have served so amazingly in places like the Congo and Chad and the Golan Heights, and that's where we want to keep it in terms of a broker. Ireland absolutely has a role to play, but this notion that we're somehow unaligned or we're neutral or we're in the middle, it is a nonsense. We do have very clear alliances, we do have very clear responsibilities, and we do take very clear positions, such as the current war in Ukraine. Okay. Minister, thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. This is a conversation that is obviously going to continue. This forum is going to be established in June and uh, there will be meetings uh, that will be televised from Dublin, Cork and Galway uh, across uh, the month. And uh, as I say, it's a discussion that's going to go on and on. But our lines are open, of course, if you want to share your thoughts with us on Irish Neutrality. Our telephone number is 0419832000. That's 0419832000. Text or WhatsApp 0861800658. That's 0861800658. You can email Michael at lmfm.ie. And our thanks this morning to Finnegale Minister of State Neil Richmond. Michael Reed on LMFM. Just a, a couple of comments. Uh, James Andrade says if we paid uh, security experts properly in the defence forces, uh, they wouldn't be going elsewhere. Meanwhile, Angela says uh, the minister sounded innocent to her on the programme this morning. Has he seen the army? We have. Uh, it's grand sending them off on peacekeeping missions uh, where they'll get double pay. Does he realise we don't have an army fit to fight? in any war. Thank you, as I say, for your message if you have been in touch with us today. Now, very exciting uh, for people locally because, as I'm sure you know at this stage, the President of the United States is uh, to land on Irish soil on Tuesday. President Biden's visit was confirmed yesterday by the White House. He will head first uh, to travel to uh, Belfast. That'll be his first stop where he will mark the tremendous progress since the signing of the Belfast Good Friday Agreement 25 years ago and underscore the readiness of the United States to support Northern Ireland's vast economic potential to the benefit of all communities. Next, the president will travel to Ireland where he will discuss our close cooperation on the full range of shared global challenges. He will also hold various engagements, including Dublin, County Louth and County Mayo and, and, and celebrate the deep historic ties that link our countries and people. We will have more information on this trip uh, to announce soon. That's not a, a, a bad pronunciation of County Loud, is it? Uh, that's the White House Press Secretary, Corrine Jean-Pierre, who took questions from journalists yesterday. The President's spokesperson was clearly so focused on the visit to Ireland that it, it distracted her to a, a point uh, where she got a bit confused when she was asked questions about China. The, and the Taiwanese president, has the U.S. seen any signs that China could be preparing some kind of response to this meeting? You know, any evidence that they could launch any kind of military drills like they did around Speaker Pelosi? So I'm just going to be very, uh, I'm just going to repeat what Secretary Blinken said, as you you all heard him moments ago when he did his press avail uh, in uh, in Belfast, Belgium, um, I'm sorry, pardon me, in, in Brussels, was confusing with the topper with the president going to Ireland and the UK. 
He was very, very clear, and we've been very clear. Um, All right, so Belfast, Belgium, Brussels, is there any difference? Uh, well, not between friends, <laughs> it seems, and everyone in the White House seems to be very excited at this stage. No wonder the wider Biden family is excited too about this trip to Ireland. One quick one on the trip to Ireland. In the past, the president has taken members of several generations of his family with him when he's made similar trips. Uh, can you discuss, is anybody else going to be coming along? We'll have more to share. I don't have anything specific on who, if there are going to be members of his family attending uh, the trip next week, but we'll certainly have more to share as we get closer to the date. Along those lines, is, is he going to retrace his family roots there? Uh, why is it personally important for him to go on this trip? Yeah, just to give you a little bit more. Uh, so, again, we'll have more in the coming days. Uh, look, the president is eager. I actually had a conversation with him this morning about this particular trip. He's eager to visit the United Kingdom and Ireland, uh, two nations whom we have close ties to. Uh, he, as I mentioned, will have a series of engagements in Belfast and Dublin and County Louth and County Mayo. Uh, but as I, I as um, you know, as I mentioned, uh, look, he's looking forward to this. The president uh, is going to be highlighting, as you talk about his family, how his family history is part of that larger shared history between U.S. and Ireland. Uh, waves of Irish immigrants helped shape America's spirit of freedom and of our uh, drive for independence, which launched an irrevocable friendship between our two countries. So yes, that part of the trip where it, it connects to his family is going to be incredibly important to him, but also the broader, uh, the broader Irish-American community as well as we talk about uh, immigrants as we talk about how this country was created. So he is um, uh, he's in, he is definitely looking forward to this trip. Uh, much better pronunciation of County Loud there. Uh, in fact, perfect pronunciation of County Loud that time round. And it's not just the White House press secretary. It's all Americans who will learn how to pronounce County Loud and the eyes of the world will fall on Ireland next week in what promises to be a true Irish-American celebration. Like all celebrations, though, there is the question of who picks up the tab. Real quick, not a question, but a request following up on Mary's uh, question about who's going with the president from the Biden family and the wider clan. Um, can we get clarification at some point in the process of that of exactly how this is paid for? There have been questions in the past about when he travels with family or when people are staying here about how that is handled. Yeah, um, and we're not doing it any differently than other families who have uh, have uh, been uh, in the White House, who have held this uh, held office, uh, and uh, and so you know we'll share more when we have more to share on who's going to be traveling with him. I don't have that information, so don't want to get ahead uh, of that. Uh, but of course, the president uh, is a president that follows the law <laughs> and uh, does uh, does does uh, these types of things in the appropriate fashion, appropriate way. So the bottom line confirmation. President Biden is on his way to Ireland. Confirmation too that the president is not going to attend King Charles's coronation. Yesterday, uh, your office put out word that the president would not be attending the king's coronation, King Charles, and that the first lady would be going on behalf of the United States. Uh, can you explain the decision and, and why the president decided that uh, he would not go as head of state on behalf of the United States? So let me just first say, and um, the president. Uh, 
had about a 25 minute 30 minute call with the king king uh, king king charles iii and during which he congratulated the king i think we put that out uh, last night as upcoming uh, coronation and they have a very friendly uh, conversation they have a, a a good relationship with the king he talked about uh, how he enjoyed meeting uh, visiting uh, the queen i should say back in 2021 he and the first lady at windsor and uh, he hoped to visit again soon actually during that call the king offered uh, for him to come and do a state a state visit which which uh, the president accepted and uh, and so they will see each other again very soon and uh, I'll, I'll just leave it there but again they have a very good relationship there are many things that they both uh, care about key shared values uh, key shared issues that they want to continue to discuss like climate change and that conversation will continue and there will be uh, a visit in the near future any uh, sense whether that state visit might happen before I the don't, end of this year? I don't have a timeline at this time don't I can't say if it when it will be but uh, the president was uh, was appreciative of the offer by the king and looks forward to to that state visit indeed and uh, that conversation about climate change very good but what will the British make of it? Are you concerned that the British people might see this as a snub that the president's not going? I know presidents haven't gone in the past, but now we have airplanes and much more modern technology that makes these kinds of trips easy to do. And what does this say about the special relationship? No, they should not see it as a snub. Not at all. Again, the president has a good relationship with the king. They had a, uh, a friendly conversation, and I will leave it at that. It is not a snub. A very interesting press conference given there by the White House Press Secretary, Corinne Jean-Pierre. Michael Reed on LMFM. Well, we've had a confirmation beyond a shadow of a doubt. President Biden will visit County Loud. Let's speak to a man who has no problem pronouncing County Loud, Paul Allen, who's a spokesperson with uh, the Irish for Biden campaign. Good morning to you, Paul. Thanks for joining us. As we've been hearing, the president will go to Belfast uh, and on to Dublin via Loud, it seems, before going on to County Mayo. Uh, it's a, a very exciting week ahead of us. Good morning, Mike, and may I say happy Easter to you and the listener. And you, <laughs> of course. It's, a, it, it's exciting times, um, and certainly, um, it's certainly the best kept secret. But for security reasons, I, I can't get into the detail if you'll allow me to say that. Uh, but certainly, I'd ask you and the listener to cast your mind back to the, the visit of the vice president back in 2016, when Joe Biden was vice president in 2016. The sunny days in Carlingford, uh, and I'm sure there's going to be many more sunny days. I was up there yesterday with Eamon Thornton, the man with the van, and it was a very damp day. But certainly, he uh, back in 2016, he visited the family grave in Kilwira uh, and spent a lot of time from Fitzpatrick's pub through to visiting Finnegan's pub. And if I also may mention his uh, relative, Andrea McKevitt, she's having a, a media event this morning in Fitzpatrick's pub to announce her plans. Uh, as part of the visit of President Biden. So it's immensely important, and it's a great confidence booster to the area and to the region and to the country. Like, my goodness, the world is going to be looking mm. uh, at Ireland for, for, for the period he was, he's going to be here. My, my hero was John F. Kennedy. He visited back in June 63. We still talk about the four days of that summer, and he said he'd come back. Uh, so this is really, really exciting. In terms of the Good Friday Agreement, um, Queen's University are hosting a lot of activity. They also have Bill and Hillary Clinton. Uh, they'll be here in Ireland uh, for a, a very long time. I think I understand it's a week, but in relation to Joe Biden, we all hold our breath and look, look, hoping that the weather will be good 
uh, and the sun will shine. Absolutely. And listening to the White House press secretary, obviously the Good Friday Agreement will be very important uh, when President Biden visits here. But retracing his family roots uh, will uh, be to the fore of his mind. I think she made that very clear. It's fantastic. And if I may just say, in terms of the, the poor press officer, many of us have to go through the days of, of pronunciations and trying to write things down phonetically. I remember sp- explaining to the British government pre-Good Friday Agreement how you pronounce T-shock. Now, you and I are well used to saying T-shock, but I had to write down the word tea, cup of tea, yeah. and shock, electric shock, T-shock. And then when we had Planet Hollywood with, with Arnold Schwarzenegger, I had to teach him Irish, and his line was, uh, I'll be back. And that in Irish is Bay, May, Arash. So okay. Bay, May, as in the month of May, Arash, mm. as in Arash on the back of your hand. So mm. out they go and pronounce it. Once you know how to see the word for what it is, rather than the word you can't pronounce, that's very easily overcome. And I know I went out of my way to talk about the pronunciation, but for positive reasons, I hope, which is how well she pronounced County Louth the second time around, and indeed that it's a county that is going to be heard about by so many Americans uh, who, whether they can pronounce it or not, will be aware of its existence and may consider coming here. That's the type of uh, publicity that uh, we're talking about. Money can't buy for this sort of publicity. Um, and Tourism Ireland are doing great work in terms of uh, the movies that are being shot here in Ireland. But as, as Clinton once said to me, President Clinton once said to me, the world thinks more of the Irish than the Irish think of themselves. So, you know, let's try and talk up the country and talk up the county. I think it's terrific as well. I just noticed that Loud County Council have some great plans for Carlingford uh, with, you know, canopies and water features uh, in, in the beautiful medieval streets of the area. And it's a fantastic location. Like, again, yesterday I was down at Lily Finnegan's. Um, it's a quiet little area, wonderful houses, beautifully kept homes, uh, some renovations of vacant homes there, some beautiful, it's a beautiful area. Like, mm. My goodness, you don't believe, you know, the, the area that you have, and please God, the sun will shine, and it'll be wonderful. But also, you can see the plans are now unfolding for Ballina, uh, in terms of St. Murat's Church, uh, the cathedral in, in Ballina, he's going to give a speech there. Uh, he's going to go in Belfast again. This has been publicised. He's coming in on, on Tuesday evening. He's going to go to Belfast and he's coming to Dublin. He's doing the doll. He's giving an address to both houses. Um, and Joe Kennedy, I look forward to meeting Joe Kennedy because um, some of your listeners will be very familiar with John Boyle O'Reilly as one of the founders of the John Boyle O'Reilly Society. We were in Boston a number of years ago and we gave him a special award, Joe Kennedy, uh, on the anniversary of his, of his uh, great uh, uncle's visit to Ireland in '63. So there's so much mm. to be proud of, and it's wonderful. Indeed. But as I said, for security reasons, I can't get into it at the moment. But sh- sit back and watch the spectacle. Yeah, absolutely. It's yeah, wonderful. Yeah, the world yeah, will be, yeah. you know, enjoying the area. Indeed. Uh, and where better to showcase Ireland uh, than Carlingford, uh, as you say? There's a very important political aspect to all of uh, this uh, as well because of uh, the Good Friday uh, Agreement. And as you mentioned, President Biden will uh, address uh, the Oireachtas. He'll be the fourth American president to do so after John F. Kennedy, Ronald Reagan and Bill Clinton. Uh, maybe if you bear with me for a, a moment, Paul, we'll hear a little bit uh, about what the Taoiseach uh, is uh, thinking uh, because uh, this is what he has had to say about the visit. The involvement of the United States and of President Biden personally has been essential to the peace process in Ireland from its earliest uncertain beginnings to the making of the Good Friday Agreement. In good days and bad, the US has always been at our side. 
So it's fitting that President Biden will be here to mark this significant milestone with us. His visit is also a statement about the strength, warmth and depth of the wider relationship between Ireland and the United States. We are true partners. We see it in our common approach to the war in Ukraine and also climate change. And we see it in the remarkable two-way trade and investment relationship between our two countries. We see it in our own families and personal connections that so many of us have across all 50 states. And we see it most clearly in the President's own special affinity with Ireland in his family ties in County Mayo and County Louth. As Taoiseach, it's going to be a very special moment to welcome a great Irish-American President, Joe Biden, home to Ireland. As I said to the President on St. Patrick's Day, he will be received with open arms and the warmest of hearts. We look forward to extending to him and to those travelling with him a Cade Meal of Falcha to Ireland. Indeed. On Taoiseach, Leo Bradker, a Cade Meal of Falcha for President Biden. Paul Allen, uh, what do you think President Biden will be saying to the politicians in Stormont and in the Oireachtas? Well, I certainly think, and it's not for me to speak on behalf of the President, but I certainly think he'll be planning and setting out the next chapter uh, on the island of Ireland. Uh, one thing that we should look back is the time when JFK spoke about De Valera and the Atlantic Alliance, the importance uh, of Ireland has with America. But like for parties to come together, the people of Northern Ireland are getting on with their lives. And Belfast has got to be one of my favourite cities. Um, and, and people on all sides, going back 25 years, I've had the pleasure of working with Bertie O'Hearn. I've worked with people from all sides, um, people who um, you know, would bring you home and have cups of tea and then the next day would be shouting at you across the table. So it's a remarkable time that we should celebrate but reflect. But let's not forget about the people we've lost and the people we're still trying to find. Um, it's a poignant time for many, many people. And also the women involved in, in, in the, the negotiations in Northern Ireland has been outstanding and made it continue. But I think the guys in Queen's University uh, are doing remarkable work. George Mitchell, please God, he'll be over uh, in terms of his health. Uh, will be over in May uh, commemorating and celebrating the Good Friday Agreement. Uh, but there's still a lot of stuff to go, um, a lot of ways to go. Um, the unionists need to come to the table. But obviously there's a local election. And guess what? They're playing politics. So mm-hmm. let's stay outside the tent because if we go inside the tent, we may lose more points. But I think at the moment, Belfast and the people of Northern Ireland have moved on uh, and it's moving on at such a pace. We need more investment. We need more money. Uh, and we need to keep the, you know, keep the place going. Uh, the uh, island of Ireland is going exceptionally well, um, despite the fact that, obviously, uh, the inflation prices, but we're, we're going in the right direction. But, Indeed. You know, it's a great moment. Yeah, uh, and uh, I think uh, people will remember in 1963 when John F. Kennedy uh, addressed uh, the Iraqis. He, he said, if things had been different, it, it could have easily have turned out that he'd have been sitting in one of the TD's chairs yep. uh, and uh, it could very easily have been the American president addressing him and uh, the other members of uh, the Iraqis. But uh, that's not how it panned out. Paul, we have to leave it there for the moment. Thank you very much indeed for joining us today. Thank you, Mike. We'll be chatting in the coming days. I look forward to that. Paul Allen, spokesperson with the Irish for Biden campaign. 
Now, as you probably heard uh, this week, uh, the government has announced it's going to establish a unit in the Department of the Taoiseach with the hope of reducing child poverty and preventing family homelessness. It seems as though they'll have their work cut out for them. Let's speak to Tricia Keelty, who's Head of Social Justice and Policy with the Society of St. Vincent de Paul. A very good morning to you, Tricia, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. Uh, what do you make of this initiative? So this is something that we really welcome in SVP. This is something that we have advocated for for a number of years. So from our point of view, it's really a critical kind of mechanism to ensure that government departments are working together to address and the issue of child poverty and family homelessness. Okay, because um, we, we have a, a Minister for Housing, we have a Minister for Children, we have a Minister for Employment and we have a Minister for Social Protection. Uh, I take it there are the departments uh, that you'd be talking uh, about uh, in terms of the need for better coordination. Absolutely, yes. That those, those are the key departments that we see being critical in terms of working together. Often what we see is, you know, around budget time that government departments may be working in silos and there isn't a lot of joined up thinking some of the time in relation to kind of what are the key measures that we can uh, implement that cut across a number of departments that are really going to make a big difference um, to children's lives. So this unit, if it's properly resourced, if it has the staff to actually drive that coordinated joint up work, has huge potential to address child poverty. Um, and But as you mentioned there, you know, there is a huge challenge there We've seen, obviously, during the cost of living crisis, the number of children growing up in poverty has increased. Um, The latest data from the CSO showed that in 2022, um, 7.5% of children were living in consistent poverty. That means that they're going without basics like nutritious food, suitable clothing, and they live in households on very low incomes. Um, How do you balance that with their constitutional rights, or how is anybody meant to balance that with their constitutional rights? Uh, Because, uh, I mean, uh, those rights should be protected uh, after the children's referendum, uh, and if children are in poverty, uh, that's due to a failing on the part of the state, is it not? Yeah, absolutely. And I suppose, really, this unit is an opportunity to address the very structural causes of poverty that lock children into poverty and and really has a lifelong impact on their lives into adulthood. So, you know, it's it's really about critically housing. Obviously, that issue has really come to the fore in the last number of years. We've seen housing costs driving poverty among families. We obviously have so many households really worried about... um, keeping a roof over their head. Um, and obviously that, that worry has intensified now with the lifting of the eviction ban. Mm. Um, so really, you know, the government really needs to be thinking in a coordinated way, be proactive and looking at preventing the damage um, that poverty can cause in the first place. And that really is about addressing things like investing in housing, investing in homeless prevention, um, investing in education and investing in our social protection system as well. Okay, well everybody is worried uh, about uh, the numbers who will become homeless in the coming weeks. Uh, the government uh, it concedes that there's going to be a huge increase in uh, the number of people uh, who will have to move out of rented accommodation. Uh, was it a mistake, do you think, uh, to lift the ban? Yeah, we're really concerned about the impact this will have. And, you know, we would have liked to have seen a lot of the measures that have 
are needed to prevent a spike in homelessness being implemented over the past five months when the ban was in place. So, yes, we're very concerned. We think there is a strong argument to reinstate the ban until we have those measures in place to protect children from the trauma of homelessness. Um, Because we're not only going to see uh, families enter into emergency accommodation, which we know is is at capacity in in a lot of areas, but we're also going to see a growth in hidden homelessness. And I suppose SVP will see that um, through our work in home visitation. That means, you know, families having to double up, um, you know, living in overcrowded situations that causes a lot of stress and strain for for parents, for children as well. Um, And that won't be counted in the official figures. So there will be a lot of issues that we won't see come to the fore and we are going to hear um, a lot of... uh, difficult stories over the next coming weeks and months and I suppose again from our point of view we need to see really um, coherent action on homeless prevention measures so ensuring people aren't um, going into rent arrears and putting their tenancy at risk that there's support there for people um, and that people are given options at the earliest um, uh, point that they may be um, losing their tenancy and that there's wraparound support there because really any even a short-term exposure to homelessness in childhood has huge knock-on impacts um, throughout a child's life. So we must see a coordinated action from government to prevent mm. that happening. It stays with you forever, for all your life, and I take it negatively so. Absolutely. You know, we, 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 we would see and hear of, of cases, you know, where families are living in very cramped conditions. It impacts on children. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Um, developmental milestones if, if they're you know toddlers and, and young children uh, for children going in, into school maybe they have to travel very long distances um, because they've been moved away from their school um, you know then they maybe feel um, different or ashamed because of their housing situation which may have an impact on their well-being their mental health and then obviously their educational outcomes as well so so really I suppose we're saying you know with this unit there's a huge opportunity to do 
significant work and for government departments to work together and have the resources to invest in children and prevent um, the trauma of both poverty and, and homelessness. All right. So the cost of living has been through the roof. Uh, you don't need me to tell you that and uh, Vincent de Paul. Uh, and it's putting so much pressure on so many people. Uh, and it's been a, a difficult winter despite government top-ups uh, and so on. Uh, but uh, it's really odd, isn't it, uh, when you consider that uh, the ESB reported profits of €847 million. Euro. Yeah, look, it's it's very hard for, for people to kind of um, grasp that. and not, like That's very difficult for people to hear because we have so many households who are struggling to pay their bills. A lot of the big bills that came in over winter, now we're seeing those come through the letterbox for people, people really struggling um, to pay for those and I suppose if there's a windfall tax um, and we need to see that introduced that that is ring fenced to support people who are struggling to pay their energy bills that's the right thing to do um, and I suppose over the long term we need to see uh, um, energy companies pass on the drop in wholesale gas prices as soon as possible um, to households and customers because really facing into another difficult winter um, won't be people won't be able to withstand it so we really need to see action in regard to that as well. Alright and it's been very good for the exchequer as well though because when those prices go up obviously uh, the government uh, gathers or collects a, a, an awful lot more in, in taxes and uh, that gives it uh, the wherewithal to pay these one-off payments. Absolutely, that's right. And I suppose, you know, we are in a good position um, coming into the next budget. And from our point of view, while the one-off measures have helped, we need to see increases in social welfare payments because even if inflation moderates, we're going to see prices level out at a much higher level. But social welfare rates haven't kept pace with inflation. So that's a real-term cut for people's incomes. So we need to see the government invest in our social protection system, ensure it meets at a minimum um, the inflation rate and again, extra supports for children and families who are really struggling as well and that must be part of this work that is undertaken by this new unit in in relation to child poverty. Okay, Um, I'm sure like a lot of us uh, this morning, undoubtedly much more so because of the work you do, Tricia, you woke up to feel very disappointed uh, that the government failed to spend a billion euro on housing, that it had put aside for housing, but it didn't spend it over the last three years. Yeah, look, I suppose, you know, we are seeing a, a turn in the tide in terms of investment and more social housing coming on stream, but really it's not happening fast enough um, and really it, it doesn't really sit very well if we are underspending in relation to uh, social and affordable housing. But I suppose at the same time, you also need the capacity, you need the construction workers, the, the, the workers on the ground to actually deliver that housing as well. So it's not just a matter of um, investment, it's also a matter of having the capacity to fulfil that as well. So there is challenges. Mm. But again, really, we need to see that dramatically ramped up um, in the coming uh, months and years if we are going to address this housing crisis. And the the one answer is more social and affordable housing. And we're talking about a a combination of problems uh, between poverty and housing uh, and uh, the cost of living. Um, We were going to live with this for years, aren't we? Well, I suppose, you know, it is a very challenging time ahead. um, But I suppose we really just have to have hope. We have to keep um, highlighting these issues and 
and in SVP, that's what we will continue to do. Um, it isn't um, inevitable that poverty and homelessness will rise and it will persist with the right measures, with the right um, investments and with the political will. Um, we can end homelessness and we can end child poverty. Now, it's not going to happen overnight, but we really need to um, have hope and keep pushing for positive change because if we if we lose um, any kind of hope or optimism, then that becomes even more difficult in terms of addressing these issues. Okay, well, let's hope then that uh, there's uh, results uh, as uh, the, uh, the decision to establish uh, this unit and that it is successful. Tricia, thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme uh, this morning. Thank you. That's uh, Tricia Keelty, who's Head of Social Justice and Policy with the Society of St. Vincent de Paul. Now, thank you to the listener who's texted in about long delays on the M1. If you're driving on the M1, our texter says, uh, can you please warn people driving on the M1? one that there's been a crash on the M1 southbound after Junction 4 and that there are long delays. That's after Junction 4 southbound on the M1 and thank you indeed uh, for uh, getting that information to us. If you'd like uh, to get in touch with us today or make comment on the programme, just to remind you our telephone number is 041 983 2000. That's 041 983 2000. Text or WhatsApp 086 Email michael at lmfm.ie. Michael Reed on LMFM. Patrick Murr is serving a five-year sentence in prison for the sale and supply of cannabis. Yesterday, two TDs, People Before Profits, Gino Kenny and Independent Violent and Wynn, went to visit Patrick Murr in Limerick Prison. And Gino Kenny is on the line. And a very good morning to you. And thank you indeed for joining us. Uh, tell, tell, tell us why you decided to go and visit Patrick Murr. Well, um, I heard about the story um, in December and I was shocked, to say the least, when I heard about Patrick's situation. So I contacted his wife and um, I just asked her, you know, obviously, you know, obviously it was true and um, we had a chat and I said, look, uh, if there's anything we can do, I can do to help in this situation. Um so obviously yesterday we went down to visit Patrick in Limerick Prison. Um, he was sentenced in December for five years, two years suspended. Um, and Patrick was he was in good form, um, but Patrick should not be there. You know he shouldn't have lost his liberty in relation to you know the situation that he was in, and he was uh, growing cannabis um, for medical use. Um, he helped a lot of people in relation to um, that kind of situation he was in his, in his home. And, um, but to be criminalised and to be sent to prison, I don't know what purpose that serves. Um, and, you know, it's just, it's just a ridiculous situation where somebody is sent to prison for, that, for such a long time because it's quite arbitrary. We've seen other kind of cases throughout the state where people... Uh, haven't been given a prison sentence, given a suspended sentence, and so forth. But Patrick was given, um, I said, five years, two years suspended, and um, 
It's very extremely harsh, extremely harsh. And uh, how, how much cannabis was in his possession? I suppose that uh, is uh, the nub of the issue, uh, because in the eyes of the law, he's law, yeah. he's a drug yeah. dealer, uh, and uh, he broke the law. Yeah, no, I wouldn't use that term. Michael. Well, the, um, the, but but yeah. that is the but, sale and supply of cannabis. Uh, I mean, yeah. it's, it's stealing drugs in the eyes of the law. Whether the you'd use law. In, whether yeah, you'd use it or not, that 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 is just yeah, a fact. Yeah, in the, in, yeah, yeah. yeah in, in in the eyes of the law, yeah, he um, he was uh, I suppose prosecuted for sale and supply, and in in the eyes of the law, in that situation, uh, somebody can be given a custodial sentence. Did he have a greenhouse full of plants, though, or how much cannabis did he have? Or? Uh, I think there was a small amount of cannabis. He had some plants, obviously, and um, uh, some trimmings from a cannabis plant. But overall, there was, I think he was prosecuted for €60,000 worth of cannabis. Okay. Uh, that's the street value that you know, the police would put it on, put it on, on that kind of uh, value. So, And obviously, Patrick was supplying the cannabis oil that he was making for quite ill patients there's a you know a lot of people have come forward in relation to you know supporting um what patrick was supplying people for um quite ill people mm. and you know they were getting benefits from the cannabis that he was making now obviously this throws a, b- a bigger story in relation to the medical cannabis access program mm. you know if that yeah. if that program was accessible and you know more available to a lot of people the likes of Patrick, you wouldn't need the likes of Patrick. No, tell tell us about that, because you're saying it, it, it's verified that people with uh, chronic illness have come forward to say that they got oil off him uh, for medicinal reasons uh, and yeah. that he wasn't selling it on street corners to 12-year-olds. Yeah. 12, 12 uh, yeah. uh, so, so if they hadn't got it off Patrick Moore, this medicine, as people will describe it, where would they have got it? Well, they would get it off somebody else and I know from personal experience that um, there's people out there, some people are quite unscrupulous in relation to buying some of this kind of medical cannabis oil um, but obviously Patrick was donating the oil to them people. Donating? He wasn't selling donating. it? Donating. He wasn't selling it. Oh, right. Okay. So, so he wasn't doing it for profit. Right. Uh, um, does he have an illness himself or...? No, I don't think so. I don't okay, think so. Just trying to understand the motivation, you know. But no, I think. I mean, some people do it for very altruistic reasons, just right. to help people, mm. you know. And there's there is people out there, Michael, mm. that are, you know, they don't do it for, you know, as for profit. They do it to help people, and there yeah. is people out like you know, like Patrick that does that, and that's a good, it's a good thing. Uh, it's just a shame that he's in prison, and you know. Mm. When people are in this situation where they are, where they can feel the benefits of cannabis, that you know, uh, they have to go to, I suppose, the black market as such for multiple barrels. Why? Uh, just uh, going back to that question, uh, where would they get it if they hadn't got it off Patrick Moore? Uh, because cannabis, for medicinal reasons, is legal. You can get medicinal yeah. cannabis now, can't you? You can, uh, Michael, but it's extremely restrictive. So there's only two ways you can get it. That's via ministerial license or the medical cannabis access program. But at the moment, between them two kind of avenues that you could go down, less than 100 people can get access. So that's that's the legal route that you know people should go down. But it's so restrictive 
that people are resorted to go to abroad. Uh, people have to go to kind of, you know, the black market as such, or some people have to go without. And I don't think that's acceptable. So if we had, this, if we had the medical cannabis access program more accessible and open to a lot of other conditions, uh, then there wouldn't be a need for you know, people like Patrick to kind of, you know, supply and help, try to help people. And that's all he was trying to do. But for that, he was, he's lost his liberty for a number of years. And I think that's just, just un- unacceptable. And I mean, seeing him yesterday, my heart went out, I have to say, you know, and uh, he's very genuine. And he says, look, he doesn't want to be there. Nobody wants to be kind of lost their, their freedom mm. for the sake of a plant. That's what we're t- talking about, Michael. Mm. We're talking about a plant. At the end of the day, he's trying to help people but now for for doing that and doing the good the right thing uh, he's being punished by the state and I don't think anybody could stand over you know the, the presence you know rules and laws around cannabis I think people will be very confused listening uh, to what you're saying uh, this morning uh, because uh, as I said earlier on he, he was convicted uh, of uh, sale and supply of cannabis uh, a drug dealer in the eyes of the law but people generally would think of it, a drug dealer as uh, some job who's preying on young people uh, bringing them into a mm. life of uh, addiction and all sorts yeah. of problems that go with it but this is uh, somebody who wasn't even selling this stuff he was giving no, it to people for no. medicinal reasons yeah yeah so there's obviously, uh, in the classical term of a drug dealer, and I don't like using that word, uh, Patrick wasn't a drug dealer. You know, he was a man that's trying to help people. And uh, I mean, you can see the testimonies that, you know, people wrote in relation to this trial that, are, you know, he was genuinely helping people. And they were benefiting from cannabis, the oil of cannabis. And uh, for that, he's been prosecuted under the... You're right, you're correct. I mean, under the kind of the present mm. laws, interpretation of the laws, yeah, he, he he committed a crime and in in that kind of uh, guise, he can be uh, imprisoned. And in this situation, he was, uh, which I think is wrong. It's just wrong, you know, that somebody, think about Michael, think all the resources that goes into imprisoning people. Somebody like Michael, uh, sorry, uh, Patrick. Patrick, yeah. It costs, mm-hmm. yeah, it costs. I mean, if he has to serve all his time, it will cost hundreds of thousands of euros to basically imprison somebody. And think of all the resources that goes into court time and all that. It's just a waste of time. Let's let's call it what it is. It's a complete waste of time imprisoning people for cannabis use, supply, or any of that. I just think it's a complete waste of time. Mm. And we need to do something different. And you need to change it. The law needs to change. That's what it comes down to. We need to kind of have a different debate about if people want to use cannabis, that's their business. But in order to do that, you have to you have to change the, the law. Um, President Biden said nobody should be in jail for using or possessing marijuana. Um, uh, unfortunately, Patrick uh, was found guilty of the sale and supply. He wasn't selling it, but he was supplying it. Uh, and uh, it was worth €60,000, uh, and he's a drug dealer in the eyes of the laws in prison. But this debate that you're talking about, uh, that's due to start this month, isn't it, with the Citizens' Assembly? The Citizens' Assembly, Michael, uh, Michael and um, obviously it will run for a number of months, and then it'll make its recommendations to the government in relation to, you know, um, I suppose the whole debate around drug use. Now, this is not just about cannabis, this is about the whole kind of 
spectrum of drug use. And it'll be a very interesting debate. It'll be very interesting what, you know, the recommendations will come back from the Citizen Assembly. And the Citizen Assembly, you know, thus far has been quite progressive uh, in relation to a lot of issues. And hopefully it will make recommendations of uh, forms of decriminalisation and hopefully regulation. Mm. That's, you know, hopefully that, I mean, that's, I'm speculating, but hopefully that will happen. And, you know, I think public opinion has changed, Michael, in the last year or so in relation to a lot of issues around drug use. And I think the majority of people would, you know, may have different, had different opinions maybe a bit of time ago. But I think people are moving to a certain place to say, look, the status quo doesn't work and we need to do something different. Mm. And that difference, hopefully, um, you know, will be more progressive than what we have now, because what we have now doesn't work. Mm. And I think the majority of people would agree that it doesn't work. Now, some people want to have more kind of, um, uh, you know, more punishments, but that doesn't work. That simply doesn't work. You know, incarcerating people Mm. um, and criminalising people. It doesn't work. So yeah. we need to do something different. Well, the President of America said you shouldn't be in jail uh, for s- s- small amounts uh, uh, if you've enough for uh, your uh, own use uh, that you shouldn't yeah. uh, be in jail. Uh, of course, it, it, cannabis is legal in a, a lot of American states, but if mm. if you were found in possession of a small amount of cannabis here, you wouldn't be able to go to America <laughs> where, it's yeah. le- where, where it's legal. Yeah. Uh, and in America, they're talking about quashing sentences. Should that be done here as well? Oh, of course, Michael, yeah. I mean, there's people that have, like, maybe 10, 15 years ago, was, were found in small, on their possession, very small amounts of cannabis, like literally enough for a joint. And they have a criminal record for that. Like, there's tens of thousands of people that have a criminal record going back years that could affect, you know, all, you know, future, you know, employment, going to the United States, different countries. Now, to me, that doesn't make sense at all, okay. you know. And uh, that should be all; they should be all quashed completely, and nobody should have um, any sort of record in relation to small amounts of any drug. If you ask me, I think you know it doesn't. It doesn't serve because we're talking mm. about what does it serve, you know, by criminating people. And criminalising people it doesn't serve any any purpose. So well, not everybody agrees. And I'll just uh, give yeah, you I'm one, not fair enough. Oh yeah, I'll just give you one comment from Jerry in Wilkinstown and Avon. Uh, if you want yeah. to respond to it, he says druggies are drug dealers. There are no ifs and buts about it. They're killing people who they supply. Cannabis is an illegal drug, and fair play to the courts. Okay. You're not going. I won't send him a Christmas card. Okay, you're not going to convince <laughs> Jerry anyway. That's that's clear. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. And I mean, there's obviously a lot of people who think like Jerry. Uh, some people do, Michael. Some people. I think you know, as I said, it's shifting. You know, people's opinions are. Um, I think moving on in relation to uh, drug use, and it's kind of. It's quite nuanced and it's, it can be complex and it can be very ugly at times in relation to addiction. Um, but the central debate, the argument that I would always make, does, um, making, make, does making something illegal make it safer? Mm. It hasn't. And all these drugs are controlled drugs, meaning that the only people that are, can have, their, have in their possession is the state. And that's not true because 
all these dro- all these drugs that we're talking about are controlled by the black market. All right, so well, but there's a huge, then there's a huge void there. So we need to take back control, and in order to take back control, you need to change the law. Okay. Now it's not it's not perfect by any means, Michael. It's not perfect, but I think it's a, it's a better model than what we have now with uh, criminalizing people and seeding control back, with seeding control basis to black market via criminality. Hmm. Uh, uh, Radio one more message, uh, which uh, you may uh, prefer than Jerry's message from somebody who says, "My brother has terrets of the facial muscles." and uh, a problem in his neck. He started smoking cannabis and it, it's helping this awful illness that he has mm. uh, up the weed. He'll be getting a bag for his birthday. The government needs to wake up at the same time. I don't smoke, says the caller. Uh, I, I, I take the legal one uh, that wrecks lives uh, and that's alcohol, uh, but it results in taxes and so on. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, hopefully, you know, over the next period of time, we'll see cannabis regulated and legalised and, you know, such as alcohol. There's obviously a downside to alcohol as well. Um, But, um, yeah, I think it's going to happen, Michael. I think it's going to happen over the next couple of years. Okay. Um, Well, time will tell. Yeah, no, it will. It will. And I know I should be on your programme many times talking about it. There's an inevitability about this. Um, and over the, I think in the next period of time, we will see some form of um, decriminalisation of cannabis. Gino, drugs, I think, yeah, I think so. Thanks yeah, very much for joining us uh, this morning. No problem, Michael. Thank you. Thank you indeed. Uh, that's People Before Profit TD, Gino Kenny. Michael Reed on LMFM. You probably know Kevin Comiskey is the IFA's sheep chairperson. The last time I was speaking to Kevin, I said to him, I do hate hearing from Matthew McGreehan of Loud IFA because it's always bad news. We heard from Matthew yesterday and he's on the phone. Matthew, good morning. What is it this time? Good morning, Michael. Uh, thanks for having me on. Yeah, we three incidents since since we spoke last, and since uh, our national chairman Kevin Comiskey was on with you last week, I heard the interview. Yeah, we three incidents at the weekend. There, uh, a woman was out walking her dog down the Drysdale Key, and the dog uh, ran into a field and uh, attacked the flock of sheep, and heavily pregnant yews, and 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 done damage. Uh, so she did. Nice. So the dog did. Uh, I don't think she got the dog yet. Mm. Uh, and she was bold enough to put it up on Facebook that she was out uh, walking her dog and the dog did chase after sheep. You know, she was looking for the dog, you know, looking for help. She didn't give her say contact anything number. Wrong with it, I take. Well, I, I, don't, I think she was blaming the farmer because there was a small hole in the fence. Oh. You know, and if that fence hadn't, if that hole hadn't to be in the fence, maybe the dog wouldn't have got through, you know. Mm. So that's the sort that's of thing we're dealing with, you know. Yeah. Um, and then, and then, uh, yesterday a farmer rang me who has uh, sheep over in the feed area. That'd be close to the border there, um, past Fahard. Mm. Uh, he has, uh, yesterday he had at least one sheep killed and three lambs, and those other sheep very badly injured. Mm. Uh, and it's believed to be an Alsatian and a Labrador. Uh, 
Yeah, you sent you sent us a photo of that. It was yeah, just disgusting. It was really appalling. Oh, it is. It's, it's, it's terrible it's now on, on that farm where he was that yeah. land uh, rented. He has to pay. You know, he's pay land rental. He has to go through the last month uh, mm. with the rain and everything, and then to go out and see his his flock uh, destroyed like that. Mm. It's just terrible. And then and now this, a, at this time of the year, Easter, it's the worst possible time of, of the year. You, you, there was a third incident. You said, yeah, like there. Uh, the Sunday before that, I think Michael Comsey or uh, Kevin, our national chairman, uh, Kevin Comsey, might have uh, briefly uh, said something about it. Uh, two German shepherds, a farmer came across them uh, with with the owner and the running loose on the mountain, uh, you know, and and even attacked the farmer's dog, you know. Uh, so it's a big problem on the on the uplands and the lowlands, and indeed for some of the farmers in the last week or two have contacted me that that they do want to uh, you know stop some of the walks and 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 uh, take down some of the sales and uh, put an end to the walks because it's just becoming too much, you know, and it's not it's not worth it, you know. Mm. Seems like the only uh, way. I mean, if people end up blaming the farmer because their dog got in and worried or killed their sheep you've got uh, an impossible conversation to have oh it is impossible now but some people yeah and then there's that incident on the mountains uh, the farmer did challenge the 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 owners of the dogs and they mm. said well we don't see any sheep around here you know mm. is that the one in Wicklow no, that, well, that was a... on our, our own mountains out here on the Carlingford Mountains, you know. Right, okay. Uh, was well. on, on what we know as the, the Liberty Mountain over Carlingford and uh, there was two German shepherds and... Uh, and they, wouldn't, they, they refused to put the dogs on a lead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. They refused to they refused to take the dog on the throat. But we, we hate to see a dog even on the mountain, even on a lead or off a lead because uh, even a dog on a lead on the mountain can spook sheep. It can put put them off the track, you know, it's a strange dog and everything else, you know. So we have a zero tolerance, uh, you know, mm. we do do not want to see dogs on the mountain on leads or off leads, mm. especially off leads, but we definitely don't want to see dogs on the mountains at all. You okay. know, there's plenty of places they can walk them, plenty of places they can walk their dogs. We can cater for people, we will not cater for, for, for their dogs. You know, mm, right. we There's should a, be respected, I think. I well, wish it should be respected. All right, you'll find people uh, living uh, on the mountains or holidaying on the mountains. Uh, do you include them? Sorry, Michael. What, what, when you talk about uh, not walking dogs on leads, uh, what about people living on the mountains or people who are holidaying on the mountains? <laughs> well, Michael, we are the shareholders of the mountain. We, we, we do not want people bringing their dogs to the mountain, you know, full stop. Mm. But if they're living there, that's all I'm saying. If they're live, well, if they're living there, Michael, they still, they still, they still have anybody that hasn't sheep on the mountain has no business bringing their dogs to the mountain. Right. You know, anybody that hasn't a flock of sheep on the mountain that hasn't a share on the mountain has no business bringing the dog to the mountain. Mm. You know, it's our livelihoods that's at stake. Hill walk and recreational use is becoming a big, big thing. You know, we have to, we have to keep on top of it. We have to protect our livelihoods, and we see this is the only way to do it to have a full ban in place of, of dogs. Yeah. Indeed, Pat Dunn below in Wicklow, I know Pat well, he he has stopped a walk across his land. Yeah. You know? Yeah, well, he was, he was assaulted, so I take it that's that. He was assaulted, yeah. yeah I've seen the picture of him. Yeah. There was even a picture of Pat being held in, you know, yeah. by this man, you know? Yeah. But yeah, the abuse we're getting, the abuse we're getting when we are asked people to leave the mountain with their dogs, you know, is 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 
coming in. Uh, hard to put up with too, you know. Yeah, we're to get more dog wardens, uh, bigger fines, uh, and so on. Do you think uh, that the changes are uh, sufficient? It will help, Michael. But on our case, on the on the Cooley Mountains, you know, uh, it will be impossible for any dog warden to police that, you know, and to make sure a dog is under effectual control. So therefore, that's why we need an outright ban on all the hills and I know my colleagues in all other hill areas throughout the country would support it and I have are looking for it and different farm organisations are looking for that too to ban people bringing dogs on the uplands on mountains whatever you call them you know all right, Matthew, we'll leave it there. Thank you, as always, for joining us. Thank you very much, Mike. Thank you. That's uh, Matthew McGrehan of Loud IFA. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. As you know, Angarda Siakana is to investigate complaints of sexual predators in the Defence Forces. We can talk to retired Garda Detective Inspector Pat Murray now. Good morning, Pat. Thanks for joining us. Uh, will the Guardi be comfortable doing this, or will they see it as one arm of uh, the security forces uh, investigating another or will will it be seen as a conflict of interest? No, there shouldn't be any conflict of interest whatsoever. Uh, Those people who are females uh, in the army who have been abused over the years can come forward and make their complaint to Angari Siakana and it'll be investigated uh, from there by the Gardaí. So there shouldn't be any conflict of interest. The only thing I would say is that if some of those people who, who will make a complaint have already made a complaint to the to the to the um, uh, military. Mm. They, they will uh, that will be evidential to get that file because it will corroborate what they're saying to the, in their statement to the to the Gardaí. So it will be evidential. Uh, so look, at it, there should be no conflict whatsoever, none. And should this would, have happened uh, previously? Um, <clears throat> well, any previous complaint to the army by uh, any of the female uh, personnel mm. that were, were the subject of uh, alleged abuse. Mm. Well, look, they conducted their own inquiries or whatever, like, you know, maybe to the satisfaction or not the satisfaction of, 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 mm. of the females involved. Yep. But however, that file that that would, would exist or notes or whatever would corroborate the uh, uh, the the, the uh, statement that that uh, they will now make to the guardian. Okay. You know? did, did this level of uh, abuse come as a surprise to you? Uh, well, it was shocking. Mm, it really is dreadful. Yeah. Like yeah, no, you know what I mean. Uh, uh, people taking up jobs with uh, you know a state organisation that people have respect for, and then discover you know, what mm. was going on and what these females were uh, subject to. Like, yeah, you know, well, it, 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 I mean, it's it, worth saying it's not just females. I mean, women yeah, no. were uh, 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 abused, they were assaulted, they were sexually yeah. harassed, they were sexually uh, assaulted, oh, yeah, they yeah. were raped, but some men, the Independent Review Group found, were also subject to that type of treatment and there was more, uh, there was a lot of physical abuse, indeed torture. Uh, uh, yeah. But all of this seems to be common. Uh, are there uh, a, grump, a group of predators uh, in the Defence Forces but there's a lot of people who are aware of it and have turned a blind eye or covered it up it seems as though you couldn't trust one of them that the Defence Forces is a share of blackguards Well I would say um, and I have worked alongside the army in some operations through, through my career with the guards 
And I would have the height of respect for them. They're very professional and very, 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 very good, like, you know. Uh, but like in all organisations, uh, you know, it's only the few. It mm. be the, and that's why when people make complaints to the Gardaí, they will see the same names coming up again. I, I imagine you know? it's only a few who are at the higher end of uh, the reason why there's so much concern. But it, it seems from the moment that any woman enters the defence forces, she's going to be referred to as a, a C. There's a, a rotten culture, quite obviously, yeah, within right, the diversity. Rotten country, yeah, 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 absolutely. But like, I think this is a golden opportunity for all the ladies who are in the army who are the subject of abuse, and of course the gentlemen, that they now can go and make their statement and stand up and be united together. And the overall aspect of this is that they'll get their complaints dealt with those people who have been the abusers will be rooted out and gone and it'll give the, an opportunity for yeah. the army to give a new, uh, let's say, have a new face of uh, publicity to, to, to the Irish public. So this is a good organisation. Like, you know, we're, we're, we're transparent now and we're this, that and the other. Like, you know, it's, mm. it's an opportunity for, for that's a mess to be cleaned up. Like, you know? All right, you, you say that uh, you uh, worked. Uh, I'm sorry, yeah. go ahead. Yeah, yeah, no. So I think it is a golden opportunity. But I, I would, I would encourage the people that have been the subject of alleged abuse to come forward mm. and make their statements. And I said it before. Some people say, "Oh, some of them are years old. It could be ten or twenty years old. Doesn't make any difference." I, I mm. dealt with the Michael Shine investigation where I had, you know, uh, from 2010 I took it on, and I could see where some of the complaints were were historic. But there are elements of uh, evidence you can look for in historic. Uh, cases. So I would tell um, anyone that might have a doubt, like, oh God, it's so long ago and I'm not going to bother. I would say, don't take that attitude. Make your complaint Mm. and let the guards investigate it. Okay. Uh, And uh, you said uh, a few moments ago that you've worked many times over the years with members of uh, the Defence Forces and you've nothing but the height of respect for them. Uh, uh, And I'm sure that'll be appreciated by many of them. And I'm sure that many of them would deserve such plaudits. uh, But it's clear uh, from that review that many don't. Uh, Should people be concerned that your colleagues uh, in Angarda Siakana would have the same perception of members of uh, the Defence Forces uh, and may be hesitant to investigate them? Well, no, I would say that quite a lot of uh, Gardaí wouldn't have worked side by side with the Army and wouldn't have had much dealings with them at all in their career. But uh, uh, I, uh, And there will be no hesitation just because they're an organisation, it's the Army, or they're sort of in the security like us or whatever, that won't that that won't happen. That just won't happen. Okay. No, no. It, it'll be it'll be dealt with. Uh, what the commissioner will have to do is appoint a, probably a detective superintendent, who is a senior investigating officer with a track record, mm. to set up an incident room. Now, where that incident room will be set up will be something for for them to determine, and uh, uh, it, everything will be generated through that incident room in respect of every complaint that's made. And uh, uh, it should be properly resourced yeah. with enough detectives and there should be enough detectives because every 
division now has a protected services unit with detectives in it who deal only specifically in okay. sexual crimes. Yeah. So mm-hmm. it's, 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 it really is... Um, a specialised field, I suppose. Yeah, uh, and yeah. the commissioner and, and, said and, that there's 26 names that have been reported to Angarda Shia Khanna, specifically yeah. on sexual uh, offences. Uh, yeah. g- g- given your exper- experience uh, in investigating crime and how stories unfold, uh, would you agree that that number will multiply because we're only at the beginning of a, a story that's going to take years and end to tell? Yeah, yeah. look, we saw it with all the 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 the, the um, clerical abuse in in institutions that like there was always a big tranche, and then there was always, you know, uh, people coming late after the game, you know, with complaints. That's why I I specifically now tell people if you have a complaint to make make it, stand up, be counted, like now is the time to do it. Because with the Michael Shine, uh, just as an example, I took it over, there was about 98 or 100 complaints at that stage in, in 2010 when I took it over. And when I was leaving in 2018, there was 190 complaints. Mm. And these were all complaints that came in, dribs and drabs. And, you know, when we got them charged, then there was a lot of people saying, oh, like you know they could see that there was actually something being done Mm. like you know Mm. so Mm. that's why I would say to people now you know if you have a complaint and you have an issue make your complaint now let the guards get a a grip of what they need to do then to investigate Uh, have they got enough manpower where is the most uh, inquiries going to be made like you know have they are are the army going to cooperate and say yeah we'll hand We'll hand over all the files in respect that the complaints was made over the last, like, uh, you know, that uh, people who have now come to the guards to make complaints. Mm. Uh, we have a file and then we'll hand it over. Now, okay. they may not hand it over, but it, there is avenues to the guard to, to, to get that information, like through uh, uh, warrants to search and, you know, and the yeah. people are not going to cooperate, they can be arrested for not Which is a, a, a so, most you know, unusual so situation, uh, but obviously is, yeah. what we've been hearing yeah. warrants uh, that level yeah. of yeah. investigation. Uh, so yeah, and the thing about it is that the Guardi are well equipped to do it, and uh, I just asked them to investigate them properly. Each and every complaint has to be looked at individually, because when a, when a file goes to the TP, DPP, and there might be 50 or 60 complaints or 100 complaints or whatever, the DPP have to sit down and look at each case and read each statement and look at each case uh, individually before a decision can be made, like, you know. Mm, okay. So it can be it can be a protracted uh, um, uh, uh, investigation, uh, you know. So yeah, yeah, look at each case uh, on its merits. Absolutely, yeah. yeah absolutely. But I, I would yeah. emphasise to anyone with a complaint to come out and make it. And then there's an opportunity for those people who are making complaints to set up with some sort of a support group, like, you know, yeah. where where they can sort of keep in contact with themselves and it will be an opportunity for the point of contact with the Gardaí be part of that group so they are fully informed and kept aware of what's actually happening and all of that, you know. Very because, good, yeah. Uh, yeah. That's, that's yeah. my advice yeah. to them yeah. and uh, I, I would, uh, do you know what I mean, but yeah. I would still, and I'd say it again, yeah. ask the people who have complaints to come out and make them and that's it and have, and once and for all, clean up this mess. Get it all out there in the open. Get the the, the wound healed, and move on. And it's an opportunity for the army, uh, as an organisation, to stand tall. And to look, we faced what 
yeah. was wrong and uh, we cleaned it up and it is a good organisation yeah. to reinvent itself off, you know? yeah. to reinvent itself yeah that's uh, okay. the way of saying yeah. Pat Murray thank you very much indeed for talking okay. to us okay alright thank, thank, thank you retired guarded right. detective inspector Pat Murray brings our programme uh, to its conclusion today and this week Maggie McGuire research Chris Murray was in uh, the control tower happy Easter God willing we'll see you for our next programme Tuesday morning 9am on LMFM good morning bye bye the Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.